0: My guest today is Dr. Christoph Koch, who is chief scientist of the MindScope program at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. His passion on neurons, the atoms of perception, memory, behavior, and consciousness, their diverse shapes, electrical behaviors, and their computational function within the mammalian brain, in particular, the neocortex. Welcome, Christophe.
1: Thank you very much, Giel, for
0: having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with um, a slightly older paper. Uh, A survey of spiking activity reveals a functional hierarchy of mouse corticothalamic visual areas. Um, You say the mammalian visual system from retina to neocortex has been extensively studied at both anatomical and functional levels. Anatomy indicates the corticothalamic system is hierarchical but characterization of cellular-level functional interactions across multiple levels of this hierarchy is lacking. Um, so, so what do you mean by hierarchical and functional?
1: Well, so uh, the brain is highly parallel. We all know that, right? But it's also serial. It's it's a very complicated evolved structure. So not every everything connects to everything else. Although the connectivity is much higher than we are used to in normal life, a typical neuron may may speak, may be connected to ten thousand or fifty thousand other cells. Given that you know in our brain, let's say in cortex proper, there are, there are sixteen billion neurons. Most neurons are not connected to each other, so you, you can make sort of a, a, a conceptual drawings, How are they arranged? And and so there the story is: well, there is some sort of hierarchy, but they are also massive sideways connection, their massive backways connection, this is the biggest way in which the, the neural networks of the brain differ from convolutional networks. So in modern machine learning, to first order, the flow of information is forward in these deep convolutional networks. It, it goes from one layer to the next to the next, there's no information flow back. Brain. Brains are radical different. There, there's massive flow of information back. There's a m- a massive connectivity back. And functional means you don't just look at the the network. Uh, let's say when it's dead, you know, in in postmortem tissue, which is typically what when we access the human brain at the neuronal level. The typically the way we access it is postmortem studies. But you want to study it actually when when the animal or the person has to do something, has to perform some function. You know make some decision, look at images and decide, are they new or are they not new, and pu- or push a button or something, and under those circumstances, when the entire brain is engaged in performing a task, then study the individual neurons.
0: Okay, so uh, hierarchical sort of the structure description, um, that, that uh, as you mentioned, the deep learning neural networks we have today is sort of hierarchical as well, right?
1: Math Yeah, so they are, so deep in deep machine learning means there could be up to, in modern networks, 50 layers, and the flow is always forward from A to B to C to D to E. But what's very different in the brain, you also have massive information coming back to all these levels, and that's not the case in deep.
0: Right. And the there's a the difference
1: of- between artificial and computer.
0: Yeah, so information, uh, sort of the network of information moving back and forth. And the additional complication is the cellular level interactions, right? It seems like we haven't really, really understood that in in deep, uh, deep level. Is it because of the measurement problem? It is difficult for us to really see what's going on?
1: It's both practically as well as conceptual problem. So... In these guys, in you know the iPhones and the computers we have, if you look at the CPU, there are typically only one or two or three different types of transistors. You know, logical gates. There's you know, or and, and not gates or NAND gates, and and then billions of them are linked together in, in very comp, in in logical uh, combinatorics. So anything that can be computed can be computed using these standardized components. The brain is very, very different. There isn't, not, there isn't just one type of nerve cell. There aren't just two types of new nerve cells, like excitatory one or inhibitory one, but now it turns out there's probably at least on the order of a 1,000, maybe 2,000 distinct types of nerve cells. They differ by the way they look, by their shape, by the neurotransmitter they use, by the, where they're precisely located, Most importantly, which genes they express and where they send their information to. And so, when you're listening to a neuron, it's not only important to hear, okay, the neuron is active or not, but you need to know what type of neuron is it. You know, is it type 20 or is it type 255? Because those two different types, although they may look similar, superficial, they may send their information to different places, or they may do something very different uh, with that information. And that we are only beginning to appreciate uh, very slowly and trying to come to grips with that uh, theoretically, because it's so different from the only other information processing networks we are used to computers.
0: Yeah, so both the variety and the quantity um, of neurons uh, make it really difficult uh, to see things. Um, and so you describe here uh, a, a large open data set. you say that surveys spiking from units in six cortical and two thalamic regions responding to a battery of visual stimuli. So this is the mice, mouse plane, right?
1: Yes, correct.
0: And so um, so so what how is the experiment done? Um, how is the spiking um, uh, spiking really picked up? The brain. All
1: right. So, so typically, what we do now, since roughly 100 years, this technology of uh, recording essentially from a piece of wire. So, think about you put a piece of wire into the brain. Very thin. It's thinner than a, 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 a than a hair. And you uh, you listen, You sort of electrically speaking, you listen to what's on that wire. And the way neurons communicate, typically, they send these little pulses. They are tens of a volt high and they are a thousandth of a a, a second uh, wide, so a a millisecond. And that's the way neurons communicate, by sending one or more of these pulses, they're also called action potential or spikes, to each other. And so we know about that since, you know, for 150 years, we can record that for roughly since 100 years, but typically we put one or two electrodes into a brain and listen to one or two neurons out of billions. But now with modern silicon technology, we can listen to from one of these pieces of highly machine silicon, we can listen to hundreds of neurons, which is still a small fraction of all of all the neurons in the brain. But it's more. And so if we do that very systematically day in, day out under a highly standardized condition, we can then begin to eavesdrop. On the activity of the brain that, after all, give rise to the mind. the mind is sort of everything the brain does, in particular, everything the neurons do and the way they they are active. And so we can begin to understand at the at the atomic level, because the the basic unit of biology is the cell. The basic atoms of perception, of consciousness, of memory are cells. And so we need to be able to listen into individual cells. And you can't do that from the outside using, uh, you know, e.g., electrodes or brain scanning, because while wonderful, these techniques, they, they only look at bulk tissue activity. It's like taking my iPhone and putting a voltmeter on top of my iPhone and trying to understand how my iPhone works just by recording sort of the voltage on top of my iPhone. And you can appreciate what... While that may be useful, you can, for example, pick up the clock. You can't really decode anything from that crude signal. And so that's a problem when you're from the outside using brain scanner. So you have to go inside the brain. And that, of course, typically you you cannot do in humans. You have to do, except during surgery, you have to do in animals, which is why we use the most popular animal, which is the mouse. Because the mouse, although it's so much smaller than us, its brain is really remarkably similar. And if I give you a little bit, you know, a little grain, a little quinoa grain of mouse tissue or human tissue or monkey tissue or dog tissue, only experts can tell the difference. The basic stuff is very similar. The basic hardware, is, it's not the same, but it's very similar. We are we all nature's children.
0: Yeah, in in this experiment, you are picking up uh, data from various regions simultaneously, right? So, so right. It's, it's the goal here is to really understand how these things coordinate with each other.
1: Yeah, ultimately, we like to read the mind of the mouse. You know, so if we could, we would re- we'd like to record from the entire brain, in in a mouse that's roughly fourteen of of cortex, the outermost layer of the brain, so called cortex. It's a layered structure, In us, it's like pizza, it's roughly the size of a 14-inch pizza. It's the thickness of the pizza, the pizza, and it's highly convolved and folded, and you've got two of those sheets that make up your left and your right brain. In the mouse, it's more like, a, like a, the top of a sugar cube. It's much smaller, but the basic stuff, again, is the same. And in principle, we like to record from all the neurons, so I can perfectly well decode what the animal is, is seeing or deciding or thinking. But I can't do that. I can only record simultaneously from about a thousand neurons in different areas. And so we can begin to understand, well, what do all these different areas doing?
0: Yeah, if you talk about a spike cross-correlation analysis, uh, you say you find the inter-area functional connectivity mirrors in the anatomical hierarchy from the allen mouse Brain Connectivity Atlas. Uh, What
1: is the mouse brain connectivity atlas that you talk about? Yeah, so so one thing we do, so you know, so I'm at the Allen Institute, named for our main benefactor, Paul Allen, who who started Microsoft. And uh, what we do different from a university, we we build we make these we build these very large data repositories and make them accessible for anyone. Anyone can log into all of our data. You can right now go to brain map.org, and you can download all of our data. So what we have done over the years, we've collected brains from thousands of mice where we stain different neuronal populations, and you you can see all that information. And we've built a high-resolution, three-dimensional coordinate framework for for the mouse brain. So whenever you put an electrode in, we can tell exactly where we are, and and we have a very much, much better picture of its anatomy than, than of human anatomy. And, and so all of that information is made available. And so we have that detailed wiring diagram, and we, the, the hardware, the, the, fixed, uh, the fixed wiring. And we can now correlate it with what we see in terms of information flow. You know, it's one thing to look at the the, the interstate highway system from space. You know, you look down with a satellite, and you can see the roads. That's static. That's like the anatomy but then it's something else to actually see cars and trucks and motorcycles and to and to see, well, how dense is the traffic, okay? And how does the density of the traffic change in the evening with rush hour or on the weekends during weekdays or during Thanksgiving, right? So those, So those are the different things. The anatomy tells us, okay, neuron one projects to neuron two or area A projects to area B. That's like saying, okay, L.A. And San Francisco are connected on the on the on the Interstate 10, right? But then you want to see well, how much traffic is actually going uh, on on that freeway right now when you know when the animal has to do something? And for that, we need these uh, we need these microelectrodes.
0: And the focus here is the visual system, uh, right? So are there other um, other systems that you're studying in the similar fashion? No,
1: so we have to focus on one because it's it's all very demanding. We're moving now, so we, we have what's called an open scope, so we want to move towards the model just like in astronomy. So uh, what happens in astronomy, most most universities don't have their own telescopes, there are few central telescopes like in, in how. Uh, Okay, in Hawaii, in Canary, or in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and you apply for observational timer. We want to do something similar, where if you, anyone, again, on the planet has an interesting idea that they want to test and has a credible proposal, they send it to us, and then if we select it, we will, we will run the experiment and then make all that data available to, to the applying party. And so we, we started off in vision, but we we're beginning to extend that to other systems like the somatosensory system. You know, the animal has whiskers and is, is very good at whisking, and the auditory system. But we started off in the, in the visual system, partly because we know a lot about vision, and of course, humans, we're highly visual creatures.
0: Yeah, I want to go into a, a recent paper that I understand, that, Christoph, that just came out in Nature. Um, human cortical expansion involves diversification and specialization uh, of projecting neurons. Um, so you said the neocortex is disproportionately expanded in human compared to mouse, both in its volume relative to subcortical structures and in the proportion occupied by uh, supra-granular layers that selectively make connections between the cortex and, and other structures. Um, so that is intuitive. The human brain is definitely bigger uh, than the mouse brain. Uh, but but the idea here is more than that, right? It's really the, the structure and the connectivity of the brain appears quite different.
1: Yes and no. <laughs> Let me decode that. So all mammals are similar. One of the characteristics hallmark of a mammal it's not just that they feed their, you know, that the the, the mothers uh, give uh, feed their the the young ones through mammary glands and that they have fur, but the other key property of mammals is they all have this neocortex. So the neocortex is a sheet-like technology. Think about it as a computational technology that nature, ev- by, you know, that evolution by natural selection sort of discovered roughly two hundred million years ago. It's a layered structure in a sense that that in different animals, including us, cortex can be bigger or smaller. As I said, in us, it's like a pizza. In a monkey, it's like a, a peanut butter cookie. In a rat or in a, in a mouse, it's like a, it's like a sugar tube. The thickness only varies by factor two or three, while the width, like a blue whale, the, the extent of this sheet can vary enormously. So that's rather similar. But then, of course, you know, you'll never have a mouse on this podcast. Why is that, right? If, if scientists say, well, the mouse is so similar to the human, why can't you invite a mouse and have a mouse talk to you? Well, because similar isn't. It doesn't mean the same. A Our brain is a thousand times bigger, roughly. So you can ask a reasonable question, well, are we just a gigantic hypertrophic mouse? Are we just a mouse you know, a thousand times bigger? Well, no, because also our neurons you know are are different. and if you look in great detail, we do have different we do have genes that are expressed differentially compared to the mouse. We have some specialization like in the upper so this cortex is a layer structure like you know like a like a cake, like a, a a chocolate cake or wedding cake, the different layers and and we have more specialization in the upper part of the layer compared to the mouse. Now we don't know what that means. We don't know the function of that is, but that's just, uh, and we can just observe that if we take little pieces of human brain that we get from neurosurgery, when the neurosurgeon, you know, when with permission of the patient, when the neurosurgeon has to go inside, inside the deep part of the brain to remove an epileptic foci or to remove a, 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 a tumor, then they have to tunnel through the overlying cortex. And typically that piece that's through the, which they tunnel is discarded as medical weight. With permission from the doctor and the and the patients, we can we can get that piece of brain. and now we can study this little, you know, looks a little bit like you know this size. We can study in the in the lab and we can poke electrodes at it. And you know, an hour before it was part, maybe part of their memory of their first kiss, and now we can understand it. And there we can, of course see significant differences to to the mouse uh, to new nerve cells from a mouse, for instance, that the human neurons are bigger factor two or three, because the entire brain is bigger. So we do see similarities, but we also see lots of differences. So the question is, are you going to emphasize the great similarities between us and all other mammals, or the fact that each species is, very, is in some sense, quite different?
0: Yeah, it's complex. So if I understand this correctly, Christoph, uh, size matters, but it's not just size. Uh, okay. Clearly, whales and dolphins, perhaps even other animals have bigger brains than humans. Correct. Um, but, but it's really not just the size, but really how it's organized that ultimately makes a big difference, right?
1: Correct. You're entirely correct. There are some whales that certainly have bigger brains, even in cortex, they even have a bigger cortex than us, and it's not quite clear why they aren't the dominant species while we are. And it may be we all have this, right? We have hands, we have opposable thumbs, we can manipulate, we can build tools, well, if you swim around in the water and all you have is little flippers, you know, you may be super smart, but for sure you can't build, you know, you can't build weapons or, you know, program computers with your flippers. Kind <laughs> of hit a keyboard with flippers doesn't work very well.
0: Yeah, I wondered, uh, Christopher, this has some implications for artificial intelligence. As you know, deep learning has really taken off. There's a lot of work done in that area. The general trend appears to be making bigger deep learning neural networks, on the premise that the bigger is always better. Um, but I wondered if we are missing a trick <laughs> in terms of, you know, uh, maybe it's just not a scale-up problem. It, it, it's uh, it could be other types of connectivity problems that we need to really understand to go further.
1: That's correct. So certainly, I wouldn't say bigger. it's deeper. So the, today the trend is to have deeper and deeper neural networks that have more and more levels of processing. Uh, yeah, but clearly we have discovered, I mean, you know, I can I can you can show me something totally new, and once you, you give me one example, I know what it is, and I can classify it in future. you know, the, all these capture tests. Machines, deep learning is very, very good if you show the machine exactly what you want it to distinguish. But if it's something that it's never seen before, so yesterday I was talking to a student of mine who's starting a company uh, doing autonomous driving, and they were driving on a freeway, and suddenly they came upon a car that was burning. There was a fuel fire. Well, the computer had never seen that before. A human, you know, you get it, okay, you need to avoid that. But if, if the machine learning has never seen an instance of a burning car, you know, it doesn't know how to deal with it. So then you have to show it 100 instances of burning cars, and then it'll never be fooled by another burning car. But, the, you know, what, what else is out there? A low probability event, you know, a children's carriage going across, or, you know, something falling off, a crate of, of bottles falling up the truck in front of you. Again, so then you have to show you the deep machine learning. You have to show all these examples. And then they are superb at it, better than than humans but we can generalize much, much more easily, at least so far, than and than machines. And so the question is, how do we do that?
0: Yeah, the, the, the generalization is a big problem. Um, the status quo machine and deep learning require a lot of data, a lot of labeled classes, uh, whereas humans don't seem to need that. Um, we seem to learn with very few examples I wondered, from an evolutionary perspective, do we know was this some sort of a step function change in in brain function as as you look at you know different mammals? when did when did you know <laughs> when did it become sort of really smart, so to speak?
1: Probably mammals, the mammalian lineage. I mean, other animals can clearly also learn, right? The squid can learn, very different lineage. But certainly mammals seem to have this capability. Take my dog. Yeah, so I have a Bernese Mountain dog. When he was young, I did once. So what I did, I took a whipped cream and then, how do you call this, um, the instrument to whip it. Um,
0: I, I know what you mean, but I can't think of it name. A
1: whisk, A whisk. Okay. <laughs> and I whisked it once inside a glass. You know, I took the whipped cream, put it in there, whisk it. It makes this noise inside the glass. It took a single trial for him, no matter where he is in the house. When I start, when that sound comes, he immediately comes running into the kitchen. A single trial, because he's associated that with, he gets some sweet whipped cream. So so, ma- so this is common to the, ma- um, uh, uh, to the mammalian lineage. Computers don't have that. Computers right now, that's a weakness. You have to show thousands of examples. So once you do that, then they're very good. They're very impressive, but you have to give them these examples. That's their weakness so far.
0: Yeah, I was talking to another neuroscientist yesterday, Christoph, and you know we were talking about the human's ability to plan and forecast in long horizons. Uh, animals appear to do appear to be good in predictions but their horizons appear very short, right? They're, they're thinking uh, seconds or minutes, uh, definitely not thinking years or you know, anything like that, right? So is that, uh, is that a function of the brain's capability, forecasting versus sort of immediate gratification?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, all animals have to forecast to a certain extent, right? They have to plan. Uh, many do it based on instinct, right? When it gets cold, squirrels will, you know, collect uh, collect nuts and, and squ- squirrel them away, right? For the, um, And for the winter season, so we are certainly not the only ones. Yes, we tend to do it for the long term. Um, that's true. Um, so there is this... Uh, if you look particularly along the hominid lineage, you know, from the apes, the great apes to us, we seem to do this better for longer and longer timescale. Although, you know, it's really at the level of the species, uh, at the level of human individuals, you see very dysfunctional behavior. I would just like to remind you of the current uh, situation in Congress where we're looking at a complete debt default, right, <laughs> with highly predictable consequences. And you wonder what these people are thinking right how good are they able to plan beyond you know October 18th whenever we're supposed to go into default so yes some people can plan uh, collectively as a spe- as, um, as a species remains to be seen because we also know you know things like um, uh, global warming etc that our ability to really plan for the long term uh, is challenged by the short-term thinking that most of us have.
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, politicians uh, don't appear to be hominoids, um, Christoph. They're, they're different species. So you know, <laughs> their brain is designed differently.
1: I, I'm afraid that we like to tell us, but of course, they're all we're all Homo sapiens. Uh, I don't know. There, you can see the limit of rationality. You know. Um, anyhow, in our <laughs> wanted brains.
0: Yeah, so, so I want to ask you, so this long-term forecasting ability, is it a is it processing capability or is it the memory is a function of, we can hold more information together for a longer period of time, and that allows us to plan and forecast better, or is it, is it processing alone?
1: It's it's probably a combination of both. So we know that some birds like blue jays, etc., they can have up to 5,000 food caches. And they also have some idea of uh, um, where they stored food more recently and where they stored it a long time ago. In other words, in terms of the quality of the food, people have shown that. So certainly lots of other animals have long-term memories. Elephants have long-term memories, uh, uh, you know, extending over years your dog will have long-term memories extending over over you know, at least a decade or so. In general, we know as you go up the hierarchy, the processing hierarchy inside a single brain, the processing um, timescale increases to encompass longer and longer timescales. So with your early visual system, you know, typically you process things that are very immediate, you know, fraction of a second. And as you go up the hierarchy in your visual system or in your in cortex in general, you come to brain areas that deal with more and more, with events that are more remote in space and time and possibly causality. So probably what's unique about us, we have deep brains in, in the sense of deep uh, deep convolutional networks. And so the deeper you get, the more... The more abstract you can the more abstract the events get that you process, and so they can be more remote in space and time. And many other animals don't have that uh, that abstract capability. You know, my dog doesn't know anything about the weekend. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, so, so I'm going to finish up with uh, one of your books um, it came out late twenty nineteen, and this is an area that you've done a lot of work in. Um, the feeling of life itself why consciousness is widespread but can be computed you see an argument that consciousness more widespread than previously assumed is the is the feeling of being alive not a type of computation or a clever hack um, that's sort of a different perspective right you know there's been a lot of research in this area and it always tend I, I don't know a lot about it but it always felt like it's a very uh, complicated thing. Uh, it's a very complex part of the, the brain function. Uh, but you're arguing slightly different here, right?
1: It may well be that... So I presuppose and there are two dominant theories of consciousness, and one presupposes is um, that consciousness ultimately is something that happens in very complex networks and in that sense it may be very basic it may be part of physics when you have a ve- enormously complex network like you get in biology it feels like something that's what i mean by the feeling of life it feels like something to be a brain let alone to be in love or to be happy or to be upset about the state of the world and in that sense it may be much more widespread than we think it might it, in fact it may go back to in western philosophy to something called known as panpsychism Pan everywhere, psyche, soul. Everything is in soul. You know, which is much more common. For example, in uh, in certain forms of Buddhism, the belief that that consciousness that many creatures are conscious. Now, not conscious in a sense. So again, my dog, you know, doesn't think he's fat. All right, my dog doesn't worry about things I worry about. But what I'm saying, my dog, and maybe even a simple mouse, or maybe even a fly or a bee. It's quite complex. It feels like something to be a bee in the sunlight when you've just sort of taken some, some ne- golden nectar from a flower. It feels somehow happy. It, it's not, it, it, there isn't a complicated bee psychology, but it, that it feels like something to be a bee, and when the bee dies, it doesn't feel like anything anymore. So in that sense, consciousness following this ancient intuition of panpsychism may be much more w- uh, widespread. And that's not just a sort of a philosophical assumption but now today we can turn those those gut feelings or those philosophies into actual science where we can actually try to test these these uh, these hypotheses
0: yeah i mean this goes back to what you were saying before the brain is not a feed forward um, network it has a lot of information going back and forth and i would imagine in such a structure there's a lot of recursion Happening, and so in some sense, uh, you can sort of step. <laughs> I'm just making this self-crystal. Uh, you can step aside and see yourself uh, because of the recursion capabilities of the brain.
1: Um, well, that's only in us. I mean, so we are self-conscious. By we, I mean adults. You know, if you have a, if a baby, a baby isn't self-conscious, right? The baby doesn't even pass uh, the, the mirror self-recognition test. But you and I, so adults, human-level adults, they can think about themselves, they become self-conscious, they can introspect, why did I just say what I said? What will I, What did I do yesterday? Where will I be one day from now? I know that I'm going to die. Right? So those are all things associated with self-consciousness. But the, uh, I'm talking about a more basic form of consciousness, just consciousness of anything, consciousness of pain, of pleasure, of seeing, of smelling, of hearing, of being upset, so self-consciousness being conscious of self it's a subset of consciousness
0: yeah, um, so when when we uh, maybe I, I misunderstood this when people talk about consciousness, they generally talk about self-awareness um, right so what what you're saying is that that is sort of a, a super level construct underneath that there are of sub subconscious things so are yeah. sub yeah, Look, nice. when
1: somebody steps on your toe, you feel pain, right? You don't need to say, "Gee, I'm Gil, I'm having a pain feeling." No, you you just you, it's just painful. When 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 you're fully engaged with the movie, when you're making love, when you are um, climbing, or when you're you know rock climbing, or when you're engaged, you know when you're fighting, when you're on a battlefield, when you're playing a competitive sport, you're highly conscious, but that inner voice may be totally gone, right? that that inner voice that always tells you something that may be totally gone. When you do uh, meditation, mindfulness, um, uh, certain drugs like psilocybin or 5-MeO-DMT, all of those things go go hand in hand with loss of self. You're highly conscious, but the self is reduced or even eliminated. Like an LSD, you get ego uh, dissolution, yet you're highly conscious. So, yes, self-consciousness... Is a particular subset of conscious experiences. And as we know from now 50 years of, of clinical and psychological research, while it has its function, it can also be highly dysfunctional and get in the, in the way of being content and being happy because the self is constantly criticizing, it's constantly nagging you, it's constantly pushing you onward, it's constantly reminding you of things you haven't done or haven't said or haven't accomplished. So uh, let's not confuse consciousness with self-consciousness.
0: Yeah, you talk in the book about, uh, you say how the theory explains many facts about the neurology of consciousness uh, and, and how it has been used to build a clinically useful consciousness meter. Uh, so, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so there's now a, a clinical trial to test, let me back up, Their patients where you're not sure is anyone home. So, for instance, if you have a patient severely injured from a car accident or fall or something, the injury may be so severe that after the patient is stabilized, so let's say we're talking one or two or three or four or five or two months out, the patient lies in bed. The patient occasionally groans or moves his or her head, but you have no idea is anyone home. this just a reflex and in some cases it is just a reflex, brainstem may be still there, most of these people are on ventilator, of course, and so in those patients it's really critical to important, also for their care, is there some consciousness, does it feel like something to be this patient, or are they in a state where they are still alive, something is breathing, the brainstem still mediates breathing, for instance, but no one is home anymore, they're not conscious anymore. Same thing doing anesthesia. We need a reliable measure that tells us, is this patient truly anesthetized or is the patient just paralyzed and you remove their memory so they won't remember afterwards? So those are two cases of great clinical urgency where we don't have a device today to measure are they conscious or not. And so this device is being tested. Essentially, it, it rings, it hits the brain with a magnetic pulse and then you measure the reverberation of the of the brain using eg and typically there's a single number called perturbation complexity index between 0 and 1 if the complexity of this response is high that's associated with consciousness like in wakeful consciousness or under ketamine or in dreaming when the complexity is low that's associated with unconsciousness like in deep sleep or during anesthesia or when the, pa- the patient is truly in coma so this would be the first practical device of its kind to tell us that the brain is, um, whether, uh, whether a human, this, this right now only applies to human, is conscious or not.
0: Hmm. And so it seems to me that consciousness then requires a, a very high multifactorial response from the brain. Um, it's is that-
1: we don't, I mean, in you and I, yes. But in creatures that had a different brain, so, for instance, right now it's controversial, uh, uh, due to birth defects, a small number of babies are born without a uh, forebrain at all. They're called unencephalic anencephalic infants. Mo- most of them die very young or in utero, but some survive. And there it's very difficult to ascertain they have some behaviors, no question, but it's very difficult to ascertain are they conscious or not. Mm. Um, and it's also, you know, that as you go down the uh, in the evolutionary ladder, you know, for, for most mammals, we can test, we can use similar tests that we can use in humans. They can't talk. Obviously, my dog can't tell me whether he is conscious, but, you know, by its by his voice, by his bark, by the way he interacts, his playfulness. You know, he's, he's quite similar in some sense to a, to a little kid, right, particular puppies. That judging consciousness by that measure becomes more and more difficult the more the, the, the creature is different from us. It's a fellow You know, I don't know whether you've watched this wonderful movie, My Teacher Octopus. It's a wonderful uh, movie about this diver who befriends this octopus. Uh, but you can see because they are so different, their behavior is so different from us. They don't look like us. They don't have fur. They don't have cute eyes. You know, it's very difficult to to be really sure uh, to the extent that I'm sure that you're conscious or that my that my dog is conscious. That's a that's a well known problem in philosophy called the the other mind problem. How do I even know you're conscious? I don't ultimately, right? You could be just a robot. You could be a zombie. I think it's extremely unlikely given that you have a brain and, you know, we are very closely evolutionary related, et cetera. But in the final analysis, the only thing I know is that I'm conscious. That's the only one incontrovertible fact I have. In fact, so this is what Rene Descartes said, you know, 350 years ago. ergo sum." I am because I'm conscious.
0: Yeah, i without knowing anything about it, Christophe, it feels a bit counterintuitive. So for example, uh, you know, somebody under anesthesia the hardware is there there is no no change to the hardware but it's a bit like um, the engine has stopped and you have to essentially restart the engine for it to work again Uh, so it is not necessarily a lack of hardware issue but how do you how do you think about that Why, why is So
1: hardware, it's not that useful to think about in terms of hardware, because, yes, the the brain is still there, but it it operates very differently. You know, so, for instance, doing deep sleep when you're not conscious, when I wake you up and ask you, Gil, did everything, anything go to your mind? Typically, you'll say no. Well, in deep sleep, your brain is crisscrossed by these very slow, it's called deep or slow wave sleep, because if I put EG on your head, I can see these very slow waves all the neurons rise and fall together in activity. And that activity, we know, is not associated with anything. It's associated with unconscious. You you, you simply aren't there. Then I take the same neuron and some different neurotransmitter active now, and so the hardware is changed. The connections are still the same, but the, the synapses have all changed. The individual processes have changed somewhat because when you're awake, there's no adrenaline, there's histamine, there's oxytocin that, that, are released, that aren't released in deep sleep that change the processing properties of your individual neuron. So, yes, while the connections are still unchanged, the very cells that you used to compute with your processor is not the same as it was during deep sleep. Because now you can see highly complex, highly differentiated and integrated activity in the same brain
0: but awake. Yeah, so in the book, you make a you make a strong statement, uh, Christoph. You argue that programmable computers will not have consciousness. Um, and what's the basis for that?
1: Okay, so A, we have to distinguish intelligence from consciousness, at least conceptually. So intelligence ultimately is about uh, intelligent behavior. You know, how do I quickly adjust given this, the environment I am and do something immediate or in the medium term or in the long term, right? Like planning, we're talking about planning early on, right? If you're intelligent, you plan for the medium and the long term. So it's ultimately about doing. Consciousness, I can sit here, in fact, at night. Tonight you're going to go to sleep. You're going to wake up inside your, your body, your sleeping body, and you'll have dreams. You're fully conscious. You're not conscious of self in your dream. You're not surprised that you can fly, you're not surprised that you can walk through walls or meet, you know, long long dead relatives or, or loved ones, right? But your conscious, while your body is, is, uh, is paralyzed, right? Because the only thing that moves is your eyes, which is why it's called rapid eye movement. Everything else is paralyzed, so you don't act out your dreams. So uh, you, you could be meditating, you could be sitting perfectly still and having all sorts of thoughts and conscience in your head without doing anything. So certainly doing is different from being. Consciousness ultimately is a state of being, being happy, being sad. Uh, uh, intelligence about behavior. Now, you can imagine a supercomputer that's programmed to do everything the human brain does. And of course, you know, at some point, it'll mimic all the behavior of the human, including speech. You know, talk to Alexa, right? right. You can ask Alexa if she's conscious. But just like you can simulate the gravity of a black hole at the center of our galaxy without having to fear that you'll be sucked into the black the into the gravitational funnel generated by your computer simulation, right? Why aren't we worried about astrophysicists who run a computer simulation of a black hole that they aren't gonna be sucked into their simulation? But you say, well, it's just a simulation. It doesn't have the causal power of gravity to bend space-time. Same thing with consciousness. You can simulate the behavior associated with consciousness. So clearly you can simulate, you know, speaking people, no problem. But that doesn't mean this computer is conscious. It's really the difference between the synthetic and the real. If you want consciousness, you have to build it into the system. You really have to replicate the, the brain. There's nothing magical about the brain in the sense that if you replicate the brain but not simulate it, if you build the brain out of out of with similar causal power to the actual brain, then you would get then you would get consciousness. But you can't you can't program it. It's not a general purpose symbol abstract computation. That's why consciousness cannot be programmed. Behavior can be programmed. Alexa shows that speech can be programmed. Again, Alexa shows us shows us that or, and Siri and all these other uh, computer science voices, but it's different from being conscious.
0: Is it a, if I understand correctly, Christopher? Is it a design problem? The status quo designs uh, will never get us there. Um, that, that that might be true, but couldn't we think about uh, when we let's say you know different designs uh, getting into artificial general intelligence? Um, as you mentioned before, it's not a feed-forward uh, deep neural network. There's a lot of connectivity issues, but if you understand all of that.
1: Correct. In principle, you're entirely right, Gil, if you build this into neuromorphic hardware, where, for instance, one processor, one transistor talks to 10,000 other transistors, like in the brain, yes, then you could get a conscious machine, no question, but you cannot simulate it. So current digital computers, although in 10 or 20 years they'll be as complex as us, they'll speak and all of that, those computers will not be conscious. It will not feel like anything. Alexa, even she tells you, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't order that for you because your credit card is maxed out. She doesn't feel anything. It's just programmed, okay <laughs> or when when you're calling consumer, you know at the hotline and they say, "We're sorry, you know you have to wait twenty minutes. They're not really sorry. It's just a recording. <laughs> but in principle, yes, you could build consciousness, but you have to build it at the level of the metal, into the hardware, because it's property of the physics of the universe
0: yeah so it's it's a bit like if you want consciousness, you have to set up to design a machine that is conscious at a hardware look,
1: level. yes, but You're if
0: right. you look for performance, um consciousness is not necessarily a good trait, I would think. Consciousness is potentially a distraction <laughs> for a machine who wants to do a trillion you know calculations a second.
1: Yes, I mean, that's another argument. It's a good one. How functional, useful is it for machine? Would it be for machine to be conscious? That's a very good one. But yeah, you have to design it from the outset. But you have to use very different computer architectures than than we're using today. You know, in our CPUs, GPUs, etc.
0: Yeah. So so I want to uh, finish up um, asking you sort of speculate uh, into the future. You you have thought a lot about this. Um, Fact, I can ask you two questions. Uh, one in neuroscience in general, seems like we're making a lot of progress. If you look forward five, 10 years, what do you think would be sort of the, the biggest um, biggest changes in our understanding of neuroscience? That's one. And and secondarily, about artificial intelligence, the path that we are on, uh, do you think we'll get to artificial general intelligence at some future time?
1: Yes. So the, the, the second one, I can answer quite clearly, yes, computer, I mean, it's just very deeply impressive, sometimes, you know, also scary how quickly, uh, how quickly machines improve, you know, if you talk to GPT-2, GPT-3, and now the new Lambda, the chatbot by, by Google, very, very impressive. Uh, so it's happening on a very rapid timescale. Our understanding of the brain, because it's by far the most complex piece of active matter in the universe that we've ever encountered, is increasing very, very slowly. So with respect to the brain, the two big things that we'll see over the next 10 years, A is a more general acceptance of of psychedelics uh, for uh, various psychiatric diseases. There's quite a bit of interesting research there and affecting a potentially very large number of people both so the healthy as well as people with a variety of neurological and psychiatric conditions, and then a more advanced brain machine interfaces like like Neuralink is building them. But that again, once you you know dealing with the messiness of the brain is just very there's this valley of death that you have to go through if your are a company. You know, even if something works very well in a lab animal, it takes you a decade or two to to translate that into humans. So progress in neuroscience is is very slow compared to progress in machine learning and computer science.
0: Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Christoph. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Thank you. Thank you much for discussing all these topics. It was a pleasure, Gil. Thank you. All right, we're all set. Yeah,
0: we're all set. Um, so scientificsense.com